We're going to start an uh, exciting new series this morning in the book of Romans. Um, we're going to be looking at that. Um, by way of getting into that as an introduction, I just wonder what you think about when you hear the word gospel. Gospel. Just turn to the person next to you and in 20 seconds, just tell them the first thing that comes to your head when you think of the word gospel. Okay? Just tell them what it is. Can you... Um, can you put the first slide up for me, guys, please? Um, for me, there are, th- there are three dec- dif- dictionary definitions um, of the word gospel, three key ones. I'm going to give you them in reverse order, but this is usually the first one that comes to my mind. And um, in particular, that scene from the Blues Brothers, if anybody's ever seen it. Um, so the dictionary definition of gospel, third on the list, is a fervent style of black American evan- evangelical religious singing. Oh, happy day. Um, Here's another dictionary definition of gospel, a record or account of the life of Jesus. Often referring to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. These are gospels. These are accounts, stories, records of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And obviously linked to that, but not quite the same, is what comes first on the list, which is that the dictionary describes the gospel as a teaching or a revelation of Jesus. So the gospel as apart from the Gospels. And that's what I kind of want to focus on today, the teaching or the revelation of Jesus. It's a thing in its own right. It's an entity. And the New Testament talks of the Gospel. Okay, It uses the word, the Greek word, ilangeloi, which means good herald. A good herald. The origin of that word angeloi, herald, is to do with a battle. So if an emperor has won a far-off victory... He's going to, what he's going to do is he's going to send back a herald, an angeloi, okay, back to his homeland to declare what has happened, to declare the victory, declare there is now peace and authority, and basically tell the good news. So when that word comes in the New Testament, it's referring to an announcement or a declaration of the good news of what God has done through the life and death of Jesus. That's the gospel. We've sung about it this morning already. It's good news. Here's a guy called Tim Keller, he leads a church in New York. This is how he puts it in this book here, Romans for You. This is one of the recommendations that I'm giving you as we go through this, uh, this, um, this series in Romans. Um, and he says this, put most simply, the gospel is an announcement or a declaration. It's not advice to be followed, it's news, good news about what's been done. Why am I telling you all this? As has already been said, that's because I want to introduce to you a series that we're going to run for the next few weeks on the book of Romans in the New Testament of the Bible. Why are we studying the book of Romans, I hear you ask? Well, because studying any book in depth presents a really great opportunity to dig into the Bible. And Romans, more than any other book, helps us get to grips with what the Bible means when it uses the word, the gospel, the declaration of good news of Jesus. And as you know, that's central to our Christian faith. And if you grew up in the church, you may have learned some verses from Romans as you grew up. Stuff about sin and death and righteousness and life in Jesus. And if you didn't grow up in the church, well, you're about to learn some verses about sin and death and righteousness and life in Jesus. Some people think Romans can be a bit heavy. Okay? It can be a bit of an intense book. It's not that long, but it, it's, quite, it's quite thick. But whether this is, and whether this is new to you or not, whether you've been through this book before like this or not, there is real treasure 
in this book that I think for now in our time is really worth pushing into. We've come to the conclusion as I've prayed that for us as a church we are, this would be a great place to go. Just to dig deeper into the Bible, deeper into what our faith is and our understanding of what Jesus has done for us and how that impacts on us. And I also felt like God said we should do it. <laughs> Some people take weeks and weeks and weeks to preach Romans. I heard once that the well-known preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones preached over 200 sermons and only got halfway through the book. We're not going to do that. <laughs> um, a guy called Simon Ponsonby, who I'm also going to quote from uh, today, um, recently did a series um, in Oxford in the church where he is, about three years ago, where he preached Romans through a whole year, over about 35 weeks. He said, um, people came up to me and they said, why, why are we preaching Romans? Why are we taking 35 weeks to go through Romans? He said, the answer is because we don't have any longer. <laughs> we're not going to take 35 weeks over it overall. So what we're going to do is quite ambitious. We're going to attempt to do six weeks before Christmas and six weeks after Christmas. But anyway, on the top of your sheets, and here is an overview, which will help us to get a handle on what it is that we're going to do as we go through Romans. I've kind of portrayed it a little bit like a mountain. This is the journey of the book, because to be honest, it is a bit of a mountain. Okay, It's quite an uphill climb, but it's really, really, really worth the view at the top. Okay, And uh, what, what that kind of graphic does is it just shows you um, kind of where we are in the book. And for today, we're just right there on that first section. Okay, um, Oh, I've got one missing there. There we go. Uh, we're just there on that first section. Okay, therefore, just to look at the top, the, the, the journey of Romans, okay, is kind of the overarching part is the bit that goes along the top. Where we were, what we now have in Christ, and therefore, who we are to become in Christ. And therefore, that's the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 1. It's quite a well-known verse. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. And we spend the first 11 chapters looking at just what that means, what God's mercy is, how that works, how that unpacks. And as Brian said to me this morning, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. <laughs> we'll come to that in about 10 weeks' time. In bet- in this morning's an introduction, and I'd love you to watch this video of Tim Keller, the guy I just showed you a picture of. And he's just gonna, he just takes a couple of minutes um, just to share why it is that Romans is such an incredible and powerful and central um, book um, for our Christian faith. Let's have a listen to him. Now, what can we say about the book of Romans that hasn't been said And how in the world can we summarize the greatness of the book? Many people point out that it's the most sustained uh, exposition of the heart of the gospel, of justification by faith alone, of union with Christ, of adoption into the family, of salvation through Christ alone, not through our works. Uh, Romans has it all there, and it has it in great depth. But perhaps the most wonderful part of the book of Romans for me is in Romans chapter 8 where it summarizes how you change from the inside out, how you change deeply. You have to put to death that which is earthly within you. Uh, The text says you have to mortify sin and yet you have to set your mind on things which are above. You have to set your mind on spiritual things. You have to learn how to meditate and to think about the gospel until it becomes real to your heart. I have always believed that at the uh, heart of Romans chapter 8, you have the secret, if there is a secret, to uh, really using the gospel in your heart to change yourself in a profound way. Why should Christians study the book of Romans today? All I have to do is point to history. St. Augustine 
was converted by reading the book of Romans, a passage out of Romans 13. And Augustine changed the course of history because he was one of the most powerful theologians in the history of the church. Uh, Calvin, Luther, John Wesley, George Whitfield, uh, so many people who came to grips with the message of Romans had their lives changed by it. And through those great figures, the church was changed and history was changed. When Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. What he's saying is the gospel, though it's a, it's a, it's a set of words, it's a set of truths, the gospel is a power. It doesn't just say that power comes through the gospel. It says the gospel is the power of God in verbal form. And therefore, for us to understand it is to get the power of God into our lives. God's Word for You expository guides take you verse by verse through a book of the Bible in an accessible... And That's where he does the selling bit for his book after that. They're part of a curriculum. You, I can tell you it's good. Um, so look at the basic facts of Romans, just to, to kick us off, just by way of introduction. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and nobody really disputes that. It was probably written on his visit to the Corinthian church, the Corinth, in about AD 55 or AD 57, somewhere in that time period. So we're talking 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, okay? And the recipients of this book, this letter that he wrote, were the Christian church in Rome. And as far as you read the book, as far as you read what's in Romans, there are kind of three key purposes that it seems that Paul has in writing this. The first thing is to introduce himself to the Roman church in preparation for his forthcoming visit. Okay, the Roman, this is one of the only churches um, that existed at that time that Paul didn't plant himself. It didn't get planted by Paul, but he, and he'd never been there, but he wanted to go. And he, subsequently he did get there, but he wrote this letter partly to introduce himself. He also wrote it, we read later, to establish a support base for what he hoped would become a fourth missionary journey right up to Spain. He wanted to go to support to Rome. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to get them to support him and, and actually literally finance his next mission which he was heading off to Spain. It, the mission never happened, but that was one of his reasons for writing. But probably the most important reason and the key reason for him writing was because he had understood, he'd become, he'd, he'd understood that there was a pastoral disagreement going on in the church in Rome. There was a tension in this church, a theological disagreement between Jewish and non-Jewish believers about how they were to celebrate their faith. And that was the key reason that Paul wrote this book. Now, that was the key reason for them. It's not necessarily the key reason why it's become so important for us over the years. That's kind of the backdrop to what happened. Actually, what Paul does is he, in the process of addressing these issues, he lays out the most um, fundamental and solid theological argument for explaining how, it, how the gospel works, how it is that, we can, that we've come from sin to life, how it is that Jesus can... Uh, save and rescue us, how it is that we can be redeemed, how it is that he, we can get righteousness, all of these arguments. This is the argument that Paul unpacks, and the backdrop of it is that there were some problems in the Roman church, which he does address um, at various points throughout the book. But this is foundational theology for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Now, I was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and um, a friend of mine who's called James actually used to share a, uh, a house with at university, probably, actually not university, after university, 25 years ago. He posted some pictures. He'd, he'd found his old Bible from university days, 
And he'd, he'd gone through it and he'd realized that what he'd done is he'd, he'd gone through this Bible and he'd made copious notes and he'd written in the Bible and all the stuff that he'd learnt, he'd understood. And we got into, there was a discussion on Facebook about it and uh, you know, one of them said, uh, oh, you know, I remember those times, it was, we, we learned a lot about God back then when we had the time. And, um, and somebody, I think James wrote, we thought we could change the world. And I wrote back and said, you have changed the world. But he said this, if I could only recommend one book of the Bible to read, it would be Romans. It's the most complete and amazing explanation of God's relationship with mankind. So that's the world-changing James Bullock, who's a doctor up in the black country somewhere, um, if in case he's listening. And I would love to challenge you guys as we go through this to, uh, to, 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 to grab this for yourselves. If you've got time this week, just grab, just grab the book and read it. Read it through. If you don't get all the way through, read the first six or seven chapters. You know, I'd really challenge you to do that. But for this morning, we're going to go into chapter one. Let's get into the text. If you've got a Bible there, um, we're going to go through that. As I said, that I didn't have space on this handout to also put the text of the Bible. So you'll need to have one in front of you, either on your phone or, on your, or in a Bible or something and uh, there are four sections we want to look at this morning. I'm not going to go all of them in depth. I'm going to sort of skirt over the first three and spend a bit more time on the fourth. But I will just read through it as we go and underline some bits and bobs about it. So firstly, this is Romans and about the author. We've already said that the author is Paul. And verse 1 gives us some real clues and keys as to Paul, his nature, and, what he th- and his mission and who he was. It says, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There's a sermon right there. Four things. I'm not going to do the whole sermon. The first thing is Paul's name. The name Paul, Paulos. Does anyone know what it means? It means small. It means, uh, did I write that on your sheet? Oh, yes, I've given it away. It means diminutive or small. You see, before he was converted, Paul, who was an, intellectually, an intellectual giant, an educated Jew, had this name Saul. He was a kind of committed Jewish guy. He was influential and passionate and zealous to the point of killing Christians. Paul killed Christians because he didn't believe that anything they talked about was anything to do with the Jewish faith that he had studied and grown up with. He did all that right up until his conversion. We haven't got time to go into his conversion now, but at his conversion, he took on this new name. He said, I'm not going to be called Saul anymore. I'm going to be called Paul. Paul, the little guy. It's not just a new name. It's a whole new identity. It suggests in taking that name that he was broken, born again, and humbled. A 180 degree turn. That's what happened in Paul's life. Total repentance. Paul, he says, the little guy, the servant of Christ Jesus. And that word servant is doulos, and it means a bond slave. It's a Jewish term. I've talked about this before here. It's not the kind of duty slaves of the Roman Empire. This is a slave who chooses to go and serve his master out of love and devotion. And this happened in Jewish customs, that you would do that, this would happen, you would serve someone, and then after seven years, if you wanted to stay in this household, Okay, you would become a bond slave. And how they would signify that is they'd get your ear and they get a big sort of nail thing and they'd put a hole through your ear. Okay? Uh, your ear would be pierced, pierced against a wooden door or backdrop and that would be the signifier that you had chosen to serve your master for the rest of your life out of love and devotion. The significance there isn't there about the blood and the wood 
And Paul had Paul, this is who Paul calls himself. I'm a, a loving and devoted servant of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that that's what Jesus has done for him, and that's what he's going to do in return. It also says he's called to be an apostle. An apostle means a sent one. Now that might seem like a really grand title. Today we hear talk of apostles and apostolic. Let me read you what Simon Ponsonby, who's the uh, other guy that I want to recommend to you. If you're, if you're looking to study this a bit more in depth, the, the Tim Keller books, they're fairly lightweight. The Simon Ponsonby one, that goes a bit more in depth. And uh, you know the details are on the back of your sheet if you want to pick that up for yourself. It said, let me read you what he says about this. He says, Paul is clear... But Paul was called to be an apostle. He didn't take this office to himself. He didn't apply or interview for it. It was a vocation, a divine summons. Paul is clear that apostleship is God-given, an anointing and an appointing by the resurrected Jesus through the Spirit. This isn't natural talent harnessed by the church, or some modern church movements think, as some modern th- church movements and thinkers think it suggest. It's not the latest entrepreneurialism. No, the Greek noun apostolos simply means one who is sent. An apostle is on a mission from God. Who proclaims the good news of God. He is a herald, an ambassador, a pioneer. Apostle is as apostle does. Note that Paul puts the word servant before apostle. Thus defining the character of an apostle. There's no self-promoting pride. There's no preening, no power play. Just service for his saviour. Next, Ponsonby says, notice how Paul puts the word gospel after apostle, defining the focus of the apostle as one framed for gospel ministry. So there's Paul, the little guy, a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, sent with the gospel and set apart his purpose for the gospel of God, willing to separate himself from everything else in his life for the sake of this gospel. Just like Jesus, Paul lays down his life He lays down his life. He gives up his own agenda. He lays down his own rights. Because following Jesus is doing that. It's being prepared to put everything else aside because of what Jesus has done for us and what he's called us to. He's set apart. Set apart for what? For the gospel. And the gospel is the foundation of Paul's life. And the gospel is the foundation of our lives. So what about this gospel? If you read through verses 2 to 6... It summarizes the gospel message. It un- I mean, we're going to unpack this through the whole book, but here's a brilliant and neat four-verse summary of what it is that this gospel means. Let's read it together from verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to his obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. I'm literally going to underline these verses because I want to get onto some of the meat of it later. So the gospel is from God, it says in verse 1. The gospel is promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. This isn't something Paul invented. It's not something he made up or generated. This is something that came from God and was promised beforehand. And the Gospel, verse 3, concerns God's Son, Jesus, who was both human and divine. He was both man 
and God. And verse 5, the gospel has implications for us. Through it we have received grace and obedience and we're called to belong to Jesus. And we're called to call others to do the same. And we remind ourselves of the gospel, you know, when we gather to what we've, we've sung the gospel this morning already. You know, we were singing this morning, Lord, I look to your cross. We sang, this is amazing grace. We sang, our Father in heaven, I believe in God the Father, I believe in his Son, I believe in the Spirit and all he's done for us. We've already sung that. We live and breathe this stuff, as Paul did. It has implications for him, and it had implications for the Roman church who he's writing to. Let's jump ahead and read the next section from verse 7. It says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I just need to give you a bit of a background about the Roman church that he was writing to. As I said, this is the only letter that he wrote to a church he didn't plant himself. And there were some properly difficult issues going on in that church stemming from the cultural backgrounds of the believers. No one quite knows how the Roman church came, to, came into being. Suspect, what, suspect, what people suspect happened is that um, there were Jews from Rome who were present at Passover on the day of Pentecost. And that they were among those who got converted and went back to Rome and took the gospel back there and started to live it out. Certainly we know that what happened is that it wasn't The gospel wasn't just restricted to Jewish background believers and that actually it went out to Greeks and Gentiles as well. And and also we know that there was a time when some of the Jews had to escape and flee from Rome and so the, the leadership of that church was passed over to some Gentile believers and as that happened, people had different ideas about what the cultural background they brought to what it was to be a Christian. I'll read you what Simon Ponsonby says. He says, Jewish believers had passed on the faith to Roman Gentiles but they'd done it with a Jewish bent which was keeping the law. So the Jews had grown up to keep the law. Now they've met Jesus and said, this is different. But they're saying, well, you can only be a believer if you still keep your Jewish law. And the Greek Christians, who've got no background in keeping the law, have come in and said, well, surely that can't be right. And they're saying, no, 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 you can't be a proper Christian unless you... And this is what the arguments are about. The cultural traditions. And at times, Paul is clearly addressing the Jewish believers in Romans. And at other times, he's clearly... addressing the Gentile believers, and later on he actually appears to be saying to both of them, come on, time to sort this out. Play nice. (laughs) Shake hands. Despite these problems that are going on that Paul has to address, it's clear from the outset that he has just a great love for them. And if you look at verse 8, I'm just going to read from there for a few verses. Firstly, he says, I thank my God for you. Through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness in how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now and at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be, may, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I've planned to come many times, but I've been prevented to up till now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. In this section here, Paul is expressing just a great affection for this church that he's never met, that he's got to correct and sort out. 
But that correction and anything he's got to say to them comes, first of all, in the context of just telling them how grateful he is to God for them. It says, verse 8, that I thank God for you. Verse 9 and 10, that I pray for you constantly. And verse 11 and 12, that I can't wait to see you. So that we can be mutually encouraged. So that I can encourage you and you can encourage me. Paul's absolutely longing to have a harvest from them. That's a funny old phrase, isn't it? Not a harvest of food. Not a harvest festival. He means a harvest of people. Just as I have had, he says, among many other communities. In other words, Paul is saying, just as the gospel has changed my life, so I long for it to change the lives, your lives and the people in your community, inside your church and outside your church. I want to see the gospel bear fruit among you in Rome. Verse 14, he says, I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, the wise and the foolish, and that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. He wants a harvest inside and outside the church. He wants everyone to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone. That's everyone. To, in- to have the chance to encounter the power of God's incredible love for themselves. There's no barrier. For Paul, there was no one who was excluded. They might have decided in their cultural ways or whatever to exclude people. No, not interested. And that's something we echo here at Winchester Vineyard. There are people here from all walks of life and all states of mind. Have a look around. Just have a look around you. Smile at some people around you. And then think to yourselves, would I hang out with these people if I wasn't in church? (laughs) You know, you don't get this kind of diverse community of people in any other walk of life. The good news of Jesus is freely available to anyone who wants it. And it does not matter what your background is, your religious background, your cultural background, your national background, your financial background, your criminal background, or your sexual background. This is the church of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. You've heard us say that many times because here we are all about Jesus and we are all about the gospel. And whatever, whatever we think we've done, the gospel of Jesus Christ excludes no one. Paul was very clear about that and very clear about his passion for seeing people come to Jesus and seeing life transformed. Verse 14, Tim Keller says, gives us the sense of Paul's burning desire to settle his debt by passing on the gospel message which God gave to him. It's his love and regard for Jesus and his love and regard for people which come through so clearly. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, Paul says, and to you who are outside it because the gospel is the way that people are called to faith and the way that people grow in faith. And what is that gospel? And just come to verses 16 and 17, which are probably the most well-known ones. Oh, I've missed some things out. There we go. You've probably heard this phrase before. Tim Keller quoted it in the video. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I've just got four points to make under here, just by way of unpacking that a little bit. That the gospel is offensive, that it's the power of God, 
that it's for everyone and that it reveals God's righteousness. I mean, it's a funny phrase, isn't it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you be ashamed of something this incredible that had been done for you by somebody else? This is incredible, life-changing good news. It doesn't make sense to be ashamed of that. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think it's not what Jesus has done that's shameful. That's amazing. It's what that reminds us about who we are that's so shameful and so sobering. See, the gospel reminds us of what we've done and who we were and who we are. And that actually all of us needed Jesus to do that in the first place. That's the shame of it. It doesn't make sense for Paul to write that I'm not ashamed of the gospel unless he had been tempted to be ashamed of it. And if I was Paul, to be honest, I think I'd be a little bit embarrassed about my past as well. I mean, we're talking about a murderer here. We all think of Paul as a good guy, but he was a murderer. He'd executed Christians and he'd enjoyed watching you know, it's no wonder that after his conversion, when he first rocked up for the rest of the disciples, they were a little bit nervous about him. Whoa, who are you? Has this guy really changed? And that was a big change. It wasn't as if Paul has sort of arrived from obscurity and all of a sudden, here he is. This guy has a past, and his past is well known. It's like someone turning up here who's had a previous criminal past that's been broadcast on all the newspapers. I mean, imagine what that would be like. Some of us find it hard to break free of the past, don't we? Sometimes we feel judged by the things that we've done in the past. Maybe we've had time inside or we've broken the law or we've done something that's very morally dubious. Maybe we still judge ourselves because of who we are in the past. And Paul knew exactly what that was like. He knew personally the power of the gospel, the power of God. I think he's kind of trying to say something like this. This is my own paraphrase. Because of what I've done, I imagine Paul saying, I'm tempted to be ashamed. However, because of what God's done, I'm not ashamed. Because it's so powerful. That word ashamed, it means offended, insulted. And the gospel is offensive on so many levels. I mean, if you think about it, this message of the gospel insults us. By telling us that our salvation in God is free and undeserved. We are such failures that the only way we can get out of this mess is via a free gift from somebody else. We can't earn this thing. It offends us by telling us that in the eyes of God we are so evil that we deserve to die. And only the death of his son could save us. There are no half measures here. You might think, I'm doing okay. I'm an okay Christian, aren't I? I I do all right. I don't kill anybody and hurt anybody. The gospel offends our autonomy. There's this idea in society, isn't there, that anyone can find God in their own way as long as they're basically a nice person. And that's not true according to the Bible. It's not about being good. It's about coming to God. Through Jesus, it's the only way. And lastly, the gospel is offensive because it tells us that our salvation was achieved by Jesus suffering and serving. Not by him conquering and destroying. And that in order to follow him, we also have to suffer and serve. That's the gospel. 
And if you wanted to have an easy life with Jesus, if you, wanna, if you want safety and comfort, you're f- and you're trying to follow Jesus as well, you'll find that that's pretty hard work. As Andy was testifying earlier. We've watched you guys go through this story for the last couple of months. I'm emotional, actually, because it's very real when you haven't got a place to live and you're just trying to listen to God and it's so easy to try and dive into your own solutions and yet for the last couple of months we've um, caught up with Andy and Ali you know how's it going and we're not sure yet we're not sure yet and that, the, the potential for these guys to just give in and, and maybe you did in your own time I don't know but you know whenever I saw them they're like yeah that's tough but we're keeping going and, and that's the gospel that's the gospel suffering and serving is what we're called to and that's quite offensive I mean, the gospel will always be offensive if it reveals to us that we have a need which we can't meet. Why would I want to come up here and boast to you that, hey, you know what, guys? I shout at my kids sometimes. Or, do you know what? I work too hard sometimes. I drink too much sometimes. Or, hey, do you know what? I'm in a really terrible relationship. I'm not, by the way. This is an example. (laughs) Terrible relationship. Or I've got an addiction that I'm just really struggling with. Well, I'm, just, I'm just really depressed. I just can't do this on my own. I need Jesus. That's something to celebrate. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's only with Jesus that we can be anyone. There's a writer called Tozer. He said this, The wronged God took the wrong upon himself in order that the one who committed the wrong might be saved. And that's the gospel. It turns everything on its head. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel saves. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, it rescues people. It brings freedom for people who are held captive by emotional, physical, or psychological pain. It brings freedom from poverty, be that material or spiritual. It brings freedom from people whose relationships have broken down and have worked too hard and poor parenting or suffered at the hands of others or suffered abuse. Or even people who've just in a mess because of their own situations and choices that they've made. There's a vineyard pastor works in a church up in London, not far from here. His name's Jason Clark. He um, had a really tough relationship with his parents. They were estranged for 20 years, all sorts of social problems. About three years ago, his mum committed suicide. The last thing she did was send a letter to all three of her sons to say, I blame you for my death. You've never really lived up to much. You've never really helped me. They had to go and switch the life support machine off for her. Six months later, his estranged dad did the same thing. Last email he sent, I'm not proud of you and you've amounted to nothing. And Jason said that he stood at the end of his father's bed and he just whispered to God, is your cross big enough for this? And he felt like God whispered back, yes it is. And as he's worked through the pain of that, he's doing really well. He continues to lead a healthy and flourishing church. He's working through painful, difficult circumstances. The gospel is big enough for every situation. It's the power of God. And the message of Romans is that the gospel can reach as far and as deep as it needs to. 
And nothing is too far and no one is too far away. Now, sometimes it does take time to change. Often our change is more gradual than dramatic. But we are finding here, aren't we, in Winchester Vineyard, that God in this city is bringing about transformation in people's lives. As we embrace the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus, when we worship him and we meditate on him and we sing these words that we sang this morning, we begin to fully understand what it is that he's done and what that means for us. We start to live that truth out in our communities and among our friends and our colleagues and our families. That's when the gospel starts to really flex its muscles. And that's why we're doing this series, to better understand and how to be better equipped to understand and live out and share the gospel, the power of God. So it might take time for us to deal with the consequences of sin, but the power of God for salvation is available right now, here and now. And all it does is it starts with saying yes to Jesus. And some of us may not have even done that ever. Certainly we may not have done that for a long time. There is an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus. I'm nearly done. The gospel is for everyone. I've already kind of said this. There's no limit. You don't have to be a churchgoer to meet with Jesus. We've just heard stories about how the gospel is impacting people on the streets as some of us go out. Anyone can experience the gospel. That's our hope and our expectation in this church, that here, out in our communities, wherever God puts us, there's no restriction. The gospel works in any context, any context that God calls us to be in. And lastly, that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. It isn't just a case of God rescuing us from our own mess. That would be amazing enough. He doesn't just do that. He doesn't just pull us out of sin. He actually puts something in us. He gives us a gift, and that gift is called righteousness. What does that mean? It means the quality of being morally right or justifiable. It's a funny word. It's not a word I admit I use very much because it feels very religious. And the more common use of that word is self-righteous or self-righteousness. And that's just really wrong, isn't it? I mean, it's smug. It implies pride and smugness and, you know, I've achieved something on my own. This isn't self-righteousness, this is God-righteousness. We could never do this ourselves. God makes us right. There's a little quote on your sheet from a guy called John Stott, who described it like this. It is a righteous status in which God, which God requires if we are ever to stand before him, and which he achieves through the atoning sacrifice of the cross, which he reveals in the gospel And he bestows freely on all who trust in Jesus Christ. So that's like basically God saying, I'm going to give you my rightness, rightness, righteousness, so that you can stand before me properly on that day. It's nothing we can do ourselves. It's a completely free gift. It works through faith and it has many implications. Some of us think that we can make ourselves right before God by trying to follow some kind of moral or religious code. It it doesn't work, and it's usually for one of two reasons. Either we get anxious because we know we'll never live up to it, or we get proud because we think we have. (laughs) Either way, that's a refusal to believe in the gospel. And the gospel is that only Jesus can save us. And by faith in him, only we can be made right. When those of us who are Christians sin... It always involves forgetting that we can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. So if we're bitter towards someone else, if we've got anger towards somebody, 
It's because we've forgotten that we've already been totally saved by that. We've been totally saved by God's grace. How can we withhold grace to others? That's an interesting one for me to think about when I'm with my kids sometimes. When we work too hard or when we're working too hard because we're afraid of failing or we've depressed because we've failed in some way. We've just forgotten that we can't earn our own righteousness. In God's eyes, we're already righteous. We've been made righteous. So the gospel is offensive and it's the power of God and it's for everyone and it reveals God's righteousness. A free gift which only he can give us and which we can only receive. And the more we get our heads and our, heads around, heads and our hearts around that and stop trying to do it on our own and just allow him to come, the more we'll be able to live in that freedom. We're going to explore more of that in detail over the next few weeks. But just as we finish, and I'd love for us to pray in a minute, I feel like for some of us this message is really striking home today. And there are some of us for whom God is going, you need to do something. I just want to tell you a little story of a girl that we heard speak about three or four weeks ago in a church meeting. She was called Holly. And she told her story, her testimony, to this meeting we were in of church leaders. She was in her late 20s, mid to late 20s. And as she got up, Scott, who introduced her to the group, commented that she looked very, very different to the way she had three or four months beforehand when he'd first met her. And Holly was dead nervous, and she'd written all this out, and she read out her story. I wish I could play you the whole thing, but I, I have an audio of it, but I don't have time. Let me just summarize it for you briefly. At the age of four, Holly went to a friend's house to play and had some kind of supernatural experience. And at that time, and she felt like a negative or evil spirit, something like that, gripped her arm. She didn't know what it was. She didn't understand it. The, the friend moved away and she never saw them again. But some kind of evil presence. At the age of six, she was abused for the first time. And then her dad developed a severe mental illness. Holly developed a fear of mirrors. She couldn't look at herself in the mirror. She had constant nightmares and couldn't sleep. At the age of 10, more abuse. At the age of 12, in the midst of the aggression and the confusion and the hurt and the pain that she was feeling, she took the first of many overdoses. In her words, she said, I became a problem child, taking drugs. By the age of 14, she was dealing drugs to fund her habit and soon after was raped by a friend as well. At the age of 16, she was living homeless on the streets of Belfast. She took too many pills and really did almost die. She said, I watched the doctors. I sort of felt like I had this out-of-body experience where I watched the doctors fight for my life. At the age of 17, she met the love of her life, Paul, and settled down with him and things were okay. And then at the age of 19, she had her first child. And from that moment, she started to live in fear. And all of this kind of fear came back. Fear that she couldn't protect her child. Fear that she couldn't look after her. Fear that she couldn't face the world. Scared of having the child taken away. And she spent pretty much the next seven years living like that. Pretty much a recluse. Two years ago, her third child, two or three years ago, her third child was born. And, some, and again, there were some difficult circumstances surrounding his birth, which uh, she didn't go into details, but it meant that he had head injuries. And um, it turned out subsequently that he didn't develop work properly. Um, she also talked about poltergeist activity in her home. She said, I tried to go out into town, but I just kept suffering panic attacks. And I just had to go home. In spring 2014... She found a lump on her breast and certain that it was cancer, said, basically, thank you, I'm ready to die. It turned out not to be cancer. She said that whenever I walked through the town, I couldn't look at anybody's faces, only feet. One day she was out in the town and she met 
this guy Scott who works for the church up there. He says to her, are you a believer? Do you ever pray? She said some ladies prayed for her. She said it was the first people I'd stopped to speak to in seven years. And I went home and I couldn't stop thinking about them. And a week later she was back in the town with her partner Paul and met them again. She said, as my partner Paul was talking to these people, I had a sudden message from God. It was that I had to forgive. I had to forgive. She said, I I kind of forgave everyone. Everyone who'd ever done this to me. She went along to church. Her arm was in agony. People hugged her, and she didn't freak out. And she was surrounded by happy people. She said, I couldn't stop smiling. So never smiled. She said, but she said, I couldn't stop smiling as I went home. But the thing was my chest, where before there had only ever been panic attacks, it felt like it was exploding with fireworks. That was the phrase she used. She went along to a new believer's session and started to share how she'd sort of come alive and how things were changing. She said, I couldn't believe it. I was talking, smiling, laughing. I was taking part. And as she left, her right arm was shaking uncontrollably. She got home and she felt like the grip on her arm had released her for the first time in 22 years. And from and this is her words now, from daily outbursts and constant thoughts of suicide and craving death and being a total recluse, recluse to loving life, getting out there, seeing faces, hugging people and seeing a female in the mirror. She said her daughter said she, she gives thanks to God for her happy mummy. And as recently as just August, um, this, the youngest child who had his head injury and had some communication difficulties and couldn't speak was prayed for for direct healing to the brain, started to speak three days later. He started using eye contact with her and sat and used the potty on his own. (laughs) She said this, I still have my down days, but the grace of God has filled me with peace and I'm changing. I've decided to live my life through Jesus. I want to learn and allow God to use my body to deliver his message to more of his lost children. And that is a story of the gospel which has power to change lives. Why don't we stand together?